So I'm hitting record now just so I don't forget halfway through the conversation because I have ADHD. So I always hit that first. Sounds like a good plan. It's a good plan. You know, looking at that 30 minutes in and seeing that it's not recording, (laughs) it's not a good feeling. (laughs) Well, so let me paraphrase what we've been talking about for the last 30 minutes. Yeah, exactly. It's one of those moments. And they're like, why? I'm like, just just roll with it. Just, Just go with it. What's going on, everyone? Josh White here, and thank you for tuning in to this incredibly special episode. Yes, General Slife. I was able to sit down with Lieutenant General Jim Slife and have a candid and transparent conversation with this uniquely positioned leader. You know, not many conversations get me nervous, but when I'm sitting across from a three-star general, it hits different. Uh, But I have to say... General Slife put me at ease right away. Uh, He was incredibly easy to talk to, very insightful, transparent, and overall it was just a great discussion. So I want to thank Major Kate Hewlett for helping set this special discussion up. And I also want to give a tremendous thank you to General Slife for giving me an hour of his time, for giving us an hour of his time. To have a candid discussion with such a uniquely positioned leader, a three-star general in today's Air Force. Lieutenant General James Slife serves as the Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations, Headquarters U.S. Air Force, Arlington, Virginia. He leads the development and implementation of policy directly supporting global operations, force management, training, and readiness for the Air Force and serves as the Air Force Operations Deputy to the Air Force Chief of Staff. Lieutenant General Slife was born outside of Detroit and grew up in Hot Springs, Arkansas. He was commissioned through the ROTC program at Auburn University and has spent the majority of his career in Special Operations Aviation assignments, deploying extensively. Prior to his current assignment, Lieutenant General Slife was the commander, Air Force Special Operations Command, Herbert Field, Florida. During my talk with General Slife, We discuss his views on command teams and his special relationship with his chief. A more lighthearted story about his uniform being left behind before a momentous change of command, his favorite leadership book, and his proudest Air Force moment. We also talk about his purpose, his why. We talk about his thoughts after 9-11 and how he felt, his time working in special operations and how those experiences shaped him as a leader. We don't shy away from the tough topics either. We talk about mental resiliency, especially after combat experience. How do you keep your team motivated through those tough times? How does one deal with invisible wounds? As a general, his schedule is packed to the brim, so we talk about family work and self-care. I ask him how does he manage to keep it all together while having such a tremendous work responsibility and constantly moving around with a wife and four children. And lastly, we talk about where he hopes to see the Air Force go by 2030. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to this very special episode. I hope you have a fantastic day. Let's get after it. Lieutenant General Jim Slife. And for those who are listening, who's like, hey, what's a Lieutenant General? That's a three-star general, right? And sir, I don't know if I've ever even spoken to a three-star general before. I think you might be the first one. What a privilege that is. You know, I have been searching for meaning my whole life, and here we have it. 
uh, we have it. the opportunity to sit down and spend a little time together, Josh. Absolutely, and, and I'm so honored that you would do that. Seriously, it's uh, such a blessing and such an honor um, for you to spend time with me today. And today's a big day. It's a, a day of celebration today, right? Because we're going to celebrate Command Chief Corey Olson's retirement today. That's what brings you here today, correct? Absolutely. Uh, Chief Olson and I were a command team here at AFSOC for about three and a half years. And, you know, I was reflecting on our time together. And it, it was a fairly momentous three and a half years. And I'm sure everybody would say that about whatever moment in time they're in. But uh, I think objectively, you know, when, when you look at things like COVID and the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the social unrest around the uh, 2020 election, I mean, there there is a lot going on during that three and a half years and as I was kind of thinking back on it every image that I have as I as I think about the key moments for that three and a half years Chief Olson is front and center in every one of those images whether it's him and me in the commander's office working through some issue or we're in a conference room listening to some you know great analysis by the staff whatever it was that you know, was consequential uh, for my three and a half years as the AFSOC commander, Chief Olson, was kind of front and center all that. So, you know, I asked him twice to uh, extend uh, his retirement, and he did. So it would be 32 years as, uh, as wow. we retire him today. It's pretty impressive. That's so rare, too. It sure is. You know, like, I, I can barely find other senior NCOs sometimes, you know, and I've been in almost 19 years now. That's that's only like about half of what, you know, someone like Chief Olson is at. I can't even imagine that. You know, he's been a chief uh, for 13 years. I mean, you think about that. that. I mean, he's been a chief for 13 years. As as you know, Josh, the, the law um, only allows 1% of the enlisted force to be a chief at any given time. And so it's, you know, it's constrained by the by the law that we have. And so, you know, when you think about somebody that's been a chief for 13 years and, you know, is getting ready to retire at uh, 32, I can't help but think that all over the Air Force, there are probably senior master sergeants going, thank God, get the heck out of the way. So it would be fun today to retire Chief Holtz. All the seniors in the audience will be like, yes, finally. So you're saying there's a chance. They're saying there's a chance. That 1% is mine. Um, No, I appreciate that. And so... If you, I don't know if you've listened to any episodes in the past, but what I do is I start off with three random questions called the Hero's Gauntlet. They're not my questions. They're Major Kate Hewlett's questions. Now, why do I bring her up? Because she's what made today possible. I've never met anyone like her. She's absolutely incredible. She is. So, like, she's been the missing piece of my life for many years, and I'm so blessed that, you know, I've, I've ran into her. Yeah, Kate is is like a proton. You know, she's just a positively charged particle that can't ever be made into a negative particle. You know, she's just going to bounce around and make everything about her positive. Uh, I love that. It's great to, great to serve with her. Absolutely. So these are her questions. Now, the first one, uh, we kind of touched on it a little bit. Can we just clarify for the audience that I have absolutely no idea what these questions are? That is correct. No one ever knows what the Heroes Gauntlet questions are. Okay. So, <laughs> so it's clarified. Fire for effect. <laughs> okay, so what are your views on command teams 
And how does that tie into reflecting on your relationship with Chief Olson? What did y'all get right? Yeah, so I think the, I think the key is in the word team. And, you know, the, the role of the senior enlisted leader is really interesting because there is no inherent authority in the role of being a command chief. You know, there's not a law, there's not an AFI that says, you know, here are all the resources you get, here are all the authorities you get. All of that flows from the from the commander. And, you know, and so how that relationship goes is very dependent on, you know, the personalities involved, but it's also dependent on, you know, what the commander's approach to the role is. And uh, for me, I, I, you know, I've seen command teams that do it a lot of different ways. You know, one of the one of the ways that, that I've seen people do it is uh, is kind of the divide and conquer approach, where the commander and the command chief are doing two different things, and they periodically intersect and you know give each other a rundown of here's what I've been up to, and then they you know bounce off and do two different things. That's not really the approach that that I've. Um, enjoyed uh, the most success with over the years. To me, the command chief can be enormously influential and enormously productive for the command if everybody understands that the command chief is completely empowered by the commander. And they can't do that if they're not present in the conversations, if they're not part of the consequential decisions. You know, one of the things that Chief Olson and I have, uh, have talked about uh, plenty of times is that, you know, there aren't any enlisted issues in the Air Force. There are just Air Force issues. And all That's Air Force point. all Air Force issues deserve to have a commander and a command chief, you know, looking at them together as opposed to, hey, I'll handle the commander decisions and you handle all the enlisted decisions. That that's not a that's not a winning combination. And so, you know, when you when I think about the time that I spent with Chief Olson, it it was we were always together for all the consequential decisions. I never, you know, I didn't make a military justice decision without getting his counsel. I didn't make a budget decision without getting his counsel. I mean, there was nothing that I did for for those three and a half years that he wasn't right in the middle of. And so to me, when you ask what what is the command team, you know, people can do it a lot of different ways, but that that is my preference is to have it be an actual team and um, you know Chief Olson is the most personable human being I think I've probably ever met I mean he could make friends you know with a, a, a tree um, and you know get the life story of the tree in the first 15 minutes because he's just that approachable and personable and that stuff and you know, I think part of the uh, part of the relationship that he and I had is, you know, that's not me, uh, and I, you know, I wish it was. I'm envious of the of how easy he is around other people. I'm not that way, um, and so, you know, in many ways, I think we complemented each other well, and we really were. Um, and I think uh, that's the best teams. Yeah, that's when, right. When there's two kind of almost opposites, which could clash, right? It could go wrong. But if those two opposites lean on each other's strengths, yeah. I mean, that's when amazing things happen. So I'm so glad you found that teammate. I did, and I, I think it comes down to respect. You know, I, I, there is nobody that I respect uh, more highly than Chief Olson. You know, I mean, he's pure integrity. 
every piece of counsel he ever gave me, you, you could be sure it was coming from a place of integrity and, uh, you know, at the heart of our core values. There was never a, a selfish piece of advice that, that he offered. So, yeah, I, it, just a fantastic relationship. And we're going we're gonna to see him out today. Yeah. Awesome. All right, sir. So here is the second question. And that's if you're willing to share the story about the time your uniform was left behind and how your team supported you to make it happen. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that's a, my uniform was left behind. Uh, that's uh, so in grammar, or, you know, we call that passive voice uh, because it hides the doer. Right. The right. uniform was left behind by. You know, we don't know. But, right. But the answer to that is by me. Mm. Uh, and so the, so the story is that uh, um, uh, we're here at Hurlburt. Uh, I officiated a change of command in the morning. It's summertime. You know, it's 150 degrees or whatever. And so as soon as the ceremony is over, I ditched the service dress jacket and, you know, put on the windbreaker and uh, went on about the rest of my day. And so that evening... We're going to hop on an airplane to head out to Cannon uh, in eastern New Mexico. The next morning is the wing change of command at Cannon. So mm. we're, you know, eastern New Mexico, 8 in the morning, wing change of command. And so we, uh, off we go. Uh, we, get to, uh, we get to Cannon. It's probably 7.30 at night. And, of course, you know, in Clovis, New Mexico, the sidewalks roll up at probably 6 o'clock in the evening. So, I mean, there's nothing open except a few restaurants and that stuff. And, uh, and so I, I'm, I'm checking into the building room and unpacking my stuff. I'm like, where is my jacket? I don't, where, where's my service dress jacket? Mm, and, uh, never a good feeling. Not a good feeling. And uh, so I called my uh, aide. I'm like, hey, did, where's my service dress jacket? And she's like, well, I don't know, sir. Where, where did you leave your service dress jacket? You know, I'm like, well, thanks. That's helpful. And so as I start kind of rewinding, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I left it in the back of my car from when I took it off after the thing in the morning. So here's the situation. It's 730 at night in Clovis, New Mexico. Uh, there's a change of command at 8 o'clock in the morning, um, you know, with 2,000 people in the, you know, hangar, civic leaders, all that. And I don't have a service dress jacket. And so I call Chief Olson. I'm like, Chief, I, I think I'm hosed here, man. I left my jacket behind. You know, what? I mean, do we do the change of command in our shirt sleeves? What do we do? And Chief Olson's like, negative, sir. We've got this. And oh, so, wow. <clears throat> yeah. And so it's, it's Clovis, New Mexico, and I'm short of service dress. So, yeah, what could possibly go wrong? So, uh, so Chief Olson gets the, uh, finds the thrift shop. Uh, president, who happens to be the MSG superintendent's spouse, uh, gets the keys to the thrift shop. And so we go start, you know, browsing through the thrift shop. And lo and behold, we find a service dress jacket that fits me that, you know, somebody has donated to the uh, to the thrift shop. And I'm like, great, wow. I can borrow this. So I take the jacket. They called in the AFI's clothing sales manager, who comes in and opens the clothing sales store. So, all right, now we're getting close. I got a jacket. Mm -hmm. I got some U.S.'s. I've got, you know, a, a smattering of ribbons, which I'm pretty sure I'm authorized to wear. Um, I've got a set of pilot wings. I mean, I'm, I'm getting close. But, I'm, but I don't have any stars. 
and I don't have a name tag that says Slife. But I mean, they don't but, right to, to have your in, name. Yeah, it would have to have been someone who never picked up their their name tag that just happened to be your name. That's right. And Slife, as it turns out, is not a is not a common name in the in the clothing sales line of work. So uh, and and neither are apparently stars in Clovis, New Mexico. So they got no stars, right. and I got no name tag. And so, mm. like, okay, getting getting a little closer here. So the aide calls the New Mexico. Uh, National Guard um, Adjutant General, who's an Army two-star, who's going to be coming in the next morning for the change of command. She was like, hey, sir, you know, you got any extra stars you can bring? Can you bring six stars uh, that we can put on General Slice's uniform in the morning? Yeah, no problem. I got it. And so she calls me up. She's like, sir, great news. We're, we're you know, we're, we got the stars. So now we're down to a name tag. <clears throat> so in the clothing sales, in the back, there's this box of unclaimed service dress name tags you know and so uh so we get a name tag that you know somebody had ordered and never picked up it's you know smithers or something and uh and we went to the 24-hour uh walmart and found some uh aluminum duct tape and a blue sharpie marker and i put this duct tape over the name tag and, uh, and and real neatly, I wrote Slife on the silver with this Sharpie marker. And, I, and I'm telling you, Josh, you, from beyond five feet, you couldn't actually tell that it was not an engraved U.S. Air Force name tag. And so, you know, at 7.55 the next morning, the adjutant general shows up, these stars, we stuck them on the uniform, and I walked up on the stage like, you know, like this hadn't been an all-night production trying to put a uniform together so that's that's the story there wow and that i know when you had all your uniform together and you were there for that change of command and it was going according to plan and no one no one batted an eye right no one knew i know in your head you were thinking thank god yeah <laughs> thank I, god I, between chief olson and, and the and the aide camp uh they bailed me out of that one and we had of course we told the pa people you know no no photos uh <laughs> which include the name tag because right. you know you zoom in on that thing you can right. probably figure out that there was something amiss gotcha no i, I think that's a, a testament to your team too like <laughs> when you're a when you're an aide or someone's right hand man or woman um you you get very creative right you can make things happen very very quick like you start to learn how to be resourceful. Oh, you got that right. And, and, the, and whenever that, because I was a med group commander's exec, uh, yeah. Colonel Crystal Henderson, and there was things that would go wrong, and my mind would go into problem-solving mode. Yep. You know, I wouldn't panic. I would just say, we're going to fix this. Yeah. We just have to find a way how. Yeah. Right? So I yeah. think there's a lot of lessons that you can learn in those positions. Do or do not. There is no try. This one's kind of my question, and I think people would just want to know, what is your go-to leadership book everyone's always interested what our air force leaders are reading is there any particular book that you've you've just returned to and always remembered you know it has uh it's probably evolved over the years you know there were um there were things that when i was um, a junior officer that i that found to be really impactful and then and then there were others that later in my career I you know I thought were a little more impactful and so I don't know that I have a go-to book but I would say probably uh, one of um, one of my all-time favorites uh, and it's one that if that that I 
um, sometimes give as, as going away gifts for people that have, have worked for me. It was a book uh, called Once an Eagle by Anton Myrer. And it's a, it's really, it's an army book. It's about two soldiers that um, kind of grew up on parallel paths from uh, World War I all the way through the beginning of, of the Vietnam War. And it's fiction, uh, but these two characters, uh, Sam Damon and Courtney Massengale, are really set up as kind of the, almost the polar opposites of one another. And mm -hmm. so Sam Damon is a soldier soldier. You know, he's always taking care of his men. He's, you know, focused on the mission and uh, and taking care of the, the people around him. Courtney Massengale is portrayed as this very politically motivated, very self-serving, uh, you know, career staff officer that, you know, is always trying to avoid damage to his career in order mm -hmm. to get ahead and so forth. And so, the, you know, it's a, it's a really well-told story, but the, uh, and it was written in the, in the late 1960s. And so it's, you know, it's been around for, uh, it's been around for over 50 years now. But <clears throat> the, the interesting thing to me is a lot of people read Once an Eagle and they view it as we should all want to be like Sam Damon and not like Courtney Massengale. And that's kind of the, the standard reading of the, of the story is to be Sam Damon, don't be Courtney Massengale. And in fact, in, in the Army a lot of times, I mean, to, the, among the worst put-downs you can say about somebody is to call them a Courtney Massengale. Oh, wow. Uh, and so, I mean, it's a real, you know, that's a real put-down in the Army. And so, uh, but I think that the fascinating thing is that they're both, they both have uh, flaws. Uh, they're both very human, you know, they're, it's not black and white. And, um, you know, and I think you can learn from, from both of these characters. And, you know, I, I'm reminded of the um, story in the Bible when Jesus sends his uh, disciples out uh, what he tells them is to be shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. And, you know, you, and I think that all of us have to be as shrewd as the Courtney Massengales, but we have to be as innocent as the Sam Damons. And so I think this is a, you know, it's a really good story. It's a, it's a lot of book. It's close to a thousand pages, I think, but, wow. um, but, but it's a really, really good read. That sounds incredible. And I, I love the parallels between the two characters you were outlining and, you know, I feel like the more you read it, the more you kind of learn that there's there's good things about both. You know, it's it's not all black and white. That's the bad guy. That's the good guy. Um, a lesson I've learned that kind of ties into that is your reputation and your actual skill level are kind of two different fronts, mm. right? They don't always match. You, that's you, right. You'd want them both to be good, but they're two different, you know, approaches, right? And I learned that in Honor Guard when. You know, we, we were in poor shape when I first got there, and I got one of the best trainers in the Air Force, uh, Tech Sergeant Jeremy Rutherford, and he made us the best, but I still wasn't getting support from the base because it was a bad reputation. Mm. And I thought, dang, you know, we're, I know we're the best. I know we're sharp, but now there's this other battle on convincing everyone of that, of that truth. Yeah. So that's when I learned that there's two different fronts, and that's kind of what those two characters remind me of. One was actually yeah. the best and maybe not a lot of people know that and then there's this other guy who everyone knows who might not actually be the best you do have one bonus question though okay what is your proudest air force moment there's a lot of ways to answer that josh you know of course there is a there's a selfish way to answer that 
you know, the personal thing that you're proudest of, but then there's probably the bigger stuff that goes beyond the person. When, when you look at the kind of acceptance of soft uh, officers and NCOs as part of the United States Air Force and not just this niche thing that kind of happens off, you know, as a side act in the Air Force, uh, over the last several years, that that is something that I, I really am uh, happy to see. Uh, so I could I could cite a whole host of of uh, senior officers with soft backgrounds that are doing impactful work for the United States Air Force. Chief Olson is the best builder of people that I've ever served with, and so the generations of senior NCOs that he has personally developed and helped uh, put into positions of influence and leadership around the entire Air Force. I mean, it really is, uh, it really is great because, you know, when I came to SOF, uh, my, you know, my first squadron was full of passed over captains and majors. I mean, that you know, nobody could get promoted in inside of SOF. Um, it, and as recently as, um, you know, when I became a, a, a one-star, um, I had a, a senior officer, you know, that essentially told me, we don't have any, we don't know what to do with soft generals because you're too narrow. You're not, you know, you're not really broad enough to do big Air Force leadership roles. And so, you know, we're kind of stuck when we make a soft general. and. Uh, and I look at the way that has changed um, over the last decade or so, um, and it certainly wasn't, you know, it wasn't um, solely me or solely Chief Olson, but he and I put a lot of work into that. And to watch people succeed at high levels across the Air Force doing things that are impactful for the United States Air Force uh, is really gratifying. Because, you know, I, as much as I have enjoyed all of my time in SOCOM and all of my time in the special ops community, the reality is that, you know, 35 years ago, I joined the United States Air Force. And, and to be in a position to be recognized as an Air Force leader and not just a niche, soft leader right. is, uh, is something that, that I, I am really proud of. I mean, I think we have, we have something to live up to there. And uh, so I'm, I'm really proud of the work that in particular Chief Olson has uh, done kind of populating the Air Force with really, really high quality senior NCOs. Leaders creating leaders. That's right. What General Creech used to say is the first job of a leader is to create more leaders. As a brand new colonel, I was on my way to War College, which of course is the top level PME for officers. And uh, I was going to, uh, going to school in Washington and I got a phone call right before I left. Uh, from the colonel's group. These are the people that do colonel's assignments uh, for the Air Force. And the colonel's group called me and they said, hey, Colonel Slife, we've got great news for you. And I, you know, this was before that I knew when the colonel's assignments people tell you we have great news for you. What they really mean is we have bad news for you. But, you know, so I'm like, oh, well, that's good. So you, you have know, that blind it, optimism. Oh, like, oh yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, Let's yeah, hear it. That's right. Yeah. Break out the good news. <laughs> and uh, they said, well, uh, in lieu of going to War College, you've been selected to be a uh, Secretary of Defense corporate fellow. And I said, 
okay, that's interesting. What, what is that? And they said, well, instead of going to war college, we take, you know, a few colonels from each service every year and send them to a Fortune 500 company, and you spend a year in a Fortune 500 company learning how the corporate world does business, and then you bring that knowledge back to the Air Force. And That's pretty unique. Yeah, and I said, well, that actually, that sounds pretty cool. Where am I going? They said, you're going to Microsoft. And so I spent a year at Microsoft as a as a brand new colonel. Wow. Uh, this was 2006 uh, that that I w- went off to Microsoft, and it was a it was a fascinating year. But one of the, I mean, and I, I could talk about that for a long time. But w- one of the real ahas to to your point about leaders creating leaders, one of the ahas in that experience for me is you know at Microsoft or any company, if you wake up one day and you don't have a uh, somebody prepared to, you know, become the vice president of whatever. Uh, you can go to Google or Oracle or Apple or GE and hire one of their people to come be your vice president. But in the military, it doesn't really work that way. Right. You know, there's yeah, only can, that's that's a really good point. There's only one place Air Force Chief Master Sergeants come from. Air Force Senior Master Sergeants. Absolutely. And there's only one place senior master sergeants come from, Air Force master sergeants. And so... There's that legacy, that building, that that, passing of the torch that's monumental for us. It it really is. And and when you think about it, so the the, um, consequence of that is that we have to build our own. I mean, we can't take our eye off the ball of developing people um, and hope that, well, somebody else will figure it out because if we don't do it it just doesn't get done right and so for us that i really do believe that the first job of a leader is to is to create more leaders because that is the future of the air force and frankly when you look around and and how often do you hear uh people on their way out the door you know and i bet you chief olson will say it today at his retirement ceremony he will say something like um how much better airmen are today than when he came in the Air Force. And I think that's actually true. And the reason it's true is because people keep investing more in people. And, you know, the, and so the airmen today really are better than the airmen of 32 years ago. It's like the, uh, the investment of mentorship has built momentum. Yeah, it's a compounding effect, like your investment program. You know, pretty soon the investment is making money off off of itself without you having to put anything into it you know and so it's this compounding effect of of developing leaders and mentoring people and you know that's um that was a real aha moment for me at at microsoft and it it, you know when you're around somebody like chief olson that is forever investing in people it really is inspiring that is inspiring and that's that's why i treat legacy with such respect because it's it's rare it's rare to see and we we're blessed to be able to see it firsthand so a little bit about you uh and your purpose and your why yeah so um been married for over 30 years got four grown kids um grew up in hot springs arkansas went to school at auburn and uh you know, it was a very, I don't think my story is particularly unique. Uh, for me, it was a very transactional relationship with the Air Force uh, at first. Um, 
I couldn't afford to go to college. Um, I had to, you know, I had to find a way to fund it myself. And the Air Force said, "Hey, we'll we'll pay for your college, but you need to give us, you know, four years in return." And so it was this, you know, it was a transaction, right? And uh, and once I started, you know, I go, well, this isn't too bad. You know, maybe I do a little more in four years. And pretty soon, I, I you know, I kind of came to this conclusion that, you know, I'm doing stuff that matters with people that I respect um, you know why would I why would I leave and so I'm now um, you know 34 years into that four-year commitment wow. uh, and I, I don't think that's a unique story you know I think people find their passion and their purpose when when they're doing things that matter as part of high-performing teams with people that they have enormous personal respect for and, you know, that's where I've been for 34 years. And so I, you know, I can't really envision anything else. Um, you know, to, your, to the question about, you know, the passion and, and what motivates me, you know, one of the things that's always surprised me is seeing senior leaders that leave, retire, whatever, disappointed or frustrated. Uh, you know, they're angry that they didn't get one more job or one more promotion or one more whatever and I had this you know kind of aha uh, kind of early in my career where I, I realized that you know if you define success in your in your career by rank or position what you're doing is you're essentially giving somebody else the decision about whether you have been successful or not in the end because you know I did I didn't promote myself but you know the Air Force did a board and they decided to promote me I didn't hire myself into any job you know the Air Force hired me into all these jobs and so the institution is the one that makes those decisions and I don't really want to be in a position where the institution tells me whether or not I've been successful I want to I want to be able to control whether or not I'm successful and so I've thought a, a lot about it. so what is the you know, what is the definition of success? What, is, what does it mean? And to me, you know, as I've thought about it, I think that the, the definition of success to me is found in the fingerprints that you leave on people, you know, because that's what, that's what people remember. You know, 10 years from now, um, people aren't going to remember that, you know, I knew how to execute a flying hour program or I could you know write good OPRs or EPRs or whatever I mean people don't remember the things they remember the investment that you made in them to help them succeed and so that is actually something I can control I can prioritize how much time I choose to invest in other people and um, so to me that's that's where I find the greatest gratification and, and satisfaction and so I you know when you ask you know, if somebody were to ask, you know, what is, have I been successful or what's the definition of success? To me, that's what it is. And I keep this, I keep this picture on my wall in every office that I'm in, and it's Alice in Wonderland. And if you're familiar, you know, if you remember the story of Alice in Wonderland, there's this scene where she's uh, trying to find her way through Wonderland, and she's um, talking to the Cheshire cat up in the tree, and the cat's up there grinning, looking at her. And the conversation is, pardon me, Cheshire Puss, can you tell me which way I ought to go from here? Well, said the cat, that depends a great deal on where you want to get to. 
Well, I don't really care where, said Alice. Well, then it doesn't matter which way you go, said the cat. And Mm. I keep that picture on my wall to remind me that everybody has a different definition of success. And, you know, before you can give anybody any meaningful career advice, you probably ought to know what their definition of success is, right? Absolutely. You know, if if you were to ask me, you know, what it, where should I go? What should I do? What assignment should I pursue or whatever? You know, I, I would start by asking you, what, where, do you, where do you think you want to go? Because if you say, hey, you know, I want to be the chief master sergeant in the Air Force one day, I'd say, okay, go this direction. And if you were to say, you know, I've got family here in northwest Florida and I, you know, want to provide stability and I never want a PCS and this is where I need to stay, I'd say, okay, that's stay here then and you know do this um if you say i really want to become an officer and go to ots like okay go that way all those are different paths they're all fine paths right but they're just based on different definitions of success absolutely to me that's uh uh investing in people and, and helping them get to whatever success looks like to them is the is the thing absolutely and you you touched on something huge um about like basically tell me how I should feel about me. That kind of mindset, right? You know, letting the organization positions, titles, and rank define your happiness and fulfillment. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll be transparent, I got caught up in that. You know, I was a tech sergeant going for master. My peers were making it, I wasn't. You know, it's, we get caught up in like what we can see and touch, right? right? Like the, the tangible. Yeah. Um, and then at some, you know, my experience with Honor Guard, I learned that there's so there's this whole other world of things that you can't quantify, of things that you can't touch or see, and that's your impact on people yeah. and the fulfillment that you get. And when I let all that go, I've, and I've still let that go, I, I dedicate all my time to what's around me and try to live in the moment at this point. But once I let that go, uh, I made Master Sergeant. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that funny? You know, I, I was telling somebody the other day, I'm in my 20th Air Force assignment right now. And as I go back and look at those 20 assignments, the funny thing is, nine of them have been the assignment that I wanted or that I thought I should have. Which is another way of saying that over half of the times in my career, I have, you know, gotten an assignment that I didn't want, that I didn't, you know, and I, I mean, 11 times in my career I've had the oh well the writing's on the wall they don't love me anymore you know mm-hmm. they're they're sending me a message you know 11 times that's, I've got that's and, tough. and but you know the reality is every one of those 20 assignments was the perfect assignment it just I just didn't see it at the right. time and you know so there's there's a whole lot to be said for you know not getting too wrapped up in that stuff and just doing the best you can in the moment wherever you are and you know these things tend to play out over time and you know in your case you made master once you let go of the reins so tightly and Mm -hmm. you know in my case i'm 34 years into a four-year commitment you know with over half the assignments were ones that i thought you know the air force tell me they don't love me anymore right but you're still here you're still going here i am are there any memorable declassified moments participating in special operation assignments that you could share and also take it back a little bit how did you feel after 9-11 and being thrust into the fight earlier than you thought um when i think back at all the memorable missions 
it's not actually the mission that I remember, it's the people that I was with. And, you know, I've been on so many great teams over the years. And I've, you know, I, I think back at the, the NCOs that were building me, and I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I look back and I go, yeah, I've got the fingerprints of this tech sergeant and this master sergeant and this chief master sergeant. You know, I've got NCO fingerprints all over me, and uh, and I, I didn't realize it at the time, but that's the thing that I remember is is the people and the teams. It's not the it's not the details of, of any particular mission. Um, I will say that you know there's there's nothing like uh, coming back alive when you should be dead uh, that really <laughs> solidifies a great right. memory. Sure, that changes your perspective forever. <laughs> yeah, it does one particular uh, mission it was the it was the first mission of Iraqi freedom in March 19th uh, 2003 mm-hmm. uh, and so I, I led the first mission that went across the border into Iraq Wow! and uh, there were seven helicopters and I was the I was leading that formation and that it was an absolutely horrendous horrendous night of flying um mm. and i mean it was just one drama after another just uh, a nightmare. For, for 13 for 13 hours and i mean it's a that's a story you know right. in and of itself but i remember what i you know but the but the point of that is i remember uh the picture that i took with that crew that i flew with um as soon as we as soon as we got back and landed you know, I remember standing next to Thomas Lesner and John Tharp and Todd Bice and Aaron Bettison and Eric Gazelle and Brian Bell. Those are the people that I flew that, that mission with. And, you know, I've got that picture of, uh, of us looking like, I mean, we had just been through the ringer. Wow. Standing out, you know, alive uh, when there was plenty of times that night that I thought, yeah, we, we really have no business being alive right now. Holy cow, that's that's incredible. Um, and and for you to be able to just you know say all those names just off the top of your head, even after all these years, yeah, it's been over twenty years now. You know those when you go through something that you couldn't do on your own, and you're you're truly relying on the person to your left and right, and you can get through that as a team. I mean, that's that brings you together closer yeah. than anything else really ever could. Yeah. Yeah, you asked about 9-11. So uh, on 9-11, I was a student at the uh, School of Advanced Air Power Studies at Maxwell. So I was a major with a line number to lieutenant colonel. And uh, um, I had just been out for a run on Maxwell, and I came back into the uh, fitness center at Maxwell. And so I'm in the lobby. I walked in the lobby, and there was a television just about like that, a television hanging up kind of in the corner of the lobby. And we walked in and watched the, you know, the uh, airplane flying to the tower. Everybody was just kind of gathered around, just staring at the television. And I remember, you know, standing there kind of dripping sweat and that kind of stuff, watching, uh, watching this take place. And all I could think of was, dang it, I, you know, I'm stuck here in school. And I knew that there was going to be action and what i what i remember thinking was i'm going to miss the war you know i'm going to be stuck here at maxwell and i'm going to miss the war and uh you know 
eight months later or whatever it was, nine, ten months later, um, I graduated and, and came to Hurlburt as an ops officer of uh, one of the squadrons. And, you know, as it turns out, I did not miss the war in Afghanistan. Yeah, you uh, definitely <laughs> you know, I, did not I got, miss it. Just like uh, everybody else, I got to spend the next 20 years uh, going back and forth, mm-hmm. not missing the war. Right. Yeah. When I when I saw 9-11, you know, unfold, I was in 11th grade. I was in my science class. And I mean, my reality was shattered. Right. Well, for one, my dad worked at the Pentagon at that time. So that was terrifying. Uh, but I remember just not believing that that was intentional. I mean, you could have maybe if it was foggy or something. But, right. you know, it was, it was a clear, beautiful day. And our teachers were like, this is intentional. You know, they were adults. They knew. Yeah. But me as a kid, I, I was like, there's no way. There's no way that someone would do that. That's crazy. Um, and then when I learned that it was intentional and I learned what types of evil truly exist out there, you know, that was eye-opening for yeah. me. And I knew I was already I was on the fence about joining because, you know, I told you about my dad, my grandfather, my great-grandfather. Um, so I, that was always on my mind. But then after that, I was like, that's it. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you did. Yes, sir. I'm glad you did, too. You know, I think mental health awareness, being strong mentally, socially, physically, spiritually is so important, you know, today more than ever. And for someone who's seen combat experience, you know, or, or have a team go through combat experience, it's, I would assume it's really hard to stay motivated, positive about the situation. And then there might be invisible wounds afterwards, right? Um, so I was hoping to get your insight and thoughts, importance of mental health, and your thoughts on invisible wounds. Yeah, you know, a couple of thoughts on that. One is, you know, when we go to combat, um, we, we oftentimes talk about higher ideals, like, you know, we're fighting for democracy or, you know, for liberty or, you know, whatever. Uh, but the reality is that in combat, everybody is fighting for the person next to them. They're fighting for their teammates. It's a, you know, they, they're in a difficult position. They're facing challenges that they don't know that they can overcome. And it's the fear of letting your teammate down that is the thing that, that motivates. I don't ever want to let down somebody that, you know, their life depends on me and my life depends on them that's like a true servant leader you know you, you would as someone like me who doesn't know anything about that lifestyle i would say oh you're you don't want something to happen to you but the reality is they're more concerned with their brothers and sisters that's around right. them that's exactly wow, right. that's powerful yeah and so you know uh but those experiences can leave you know can leave us damaged um, you know, there are things think fall into the category of invisible wounds that I carry around, and I think most people that have, you know, regardless of what your what your experience is, how violent or graphic or you know life threatening it was, I think many people do carry around some degree of invisible wounds. I certainly do, and I think you know on that topic. Uh, we use that term invisible wounds and I, I I think sometimes we don't do a good enough job at characterizing what exactly we're talking about when we use the term invisible wounds and and what I think Josh is that there are 
there are really three kinds of wounds that fall into this category. And they are, in many ways, they, they manifest similarly. And so, you know, it's hard to diagnose exactly what, why are we seeing this behavior? You know, whether it's, you know, can't sleep at night, whether it's, you know, having nightmares, whether it's anxiety, you know, whether it's substance abuse, whether it's thoughts of self-harm. I mean, these are all ways that these invisible wounds manifest, but I don't think you can effectively treat the wound itself unless you understand what is the wound. And I think there are three very different types of invisible wounds. The first one uh, is neurocognitive injury. And so neurocognitive injury is, uh, is brain damage. It's traumatic uh, um, blast injury. You know, it is, I was in a MRAP that got blown up by a IED and, you know, it rattled my brain or I was uh, on an AC-130 gunship uh, that was firing 105 rounds, you know, every night and I was standing next to the barrel as this thing, you know, uh, went off over and over again. Uh, EOD technician and, you know, was blowing up unexploded ordnance and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I think this neurocognitive injury, brain damage, I think, uh, I think people understand what that is and can kind of get their, can get their minds around what, what that looks like. But it manifests in some of those ways. The second one is psychological injury. And psychological injury, again, manifests in many of the same ways, but it, it comes from a very different place. It is, it is experiencing, uh, seeing um, something traumatic, you know, that, that the human shouldn't really have to experience. It is, you know, my teammate being shot, and I had to, you know, listen to him as he you know, as he died next to me. It is watching somebody get blown up. It, I mean, it's these very violent, traumatic things that, that we might go through that leave us psychologically wounded because humans shouldn't have to experience that. I mean, it's right. not part of, you know, what we should do. Post-traumatic stress, PTS, right? And so the post-traumatic event, and, you know, this could be, it, it could be a combat-related thing. It, it doesn't have to be combat related it's just some trauma that you experience in your life can leave these invisible wounds behind so that's psychological injury the third invisible wound is uh, uh, what many people describe as moral injury mm. and moral injury is when we do something uh, or tolerate something that doesn't align with our personal moral system and it is doing something that uh, I thought was the right thing at the time or it felt like it was justified when I did it but when I look back I realize I shouldn't have done that and you know I or, or I should have done something about that but I stood there and let it happen and you know we have this guilt from you know what we should have done or what or what we um, shouldn't have done uh, right. that, is, that is caused by taking some action that doesn't align with our own with our own value system and so you know the moral injury psychological injury neurocognitive injury i think those things are are all different types of invisible wounds that really can uh leave similar marks but but i think the treatment is probably very very different for those 
Absolutely. No, th- I haven't heard it just outlined that way, right? You, you, it's always wrapped up in one word, one topic. Mm-hmm. So to hear it broken out like that, you know, it would have to have a different approach of, of healing for each one. That's right. As we come to uh, the end of our talk here, you know, as a, a master sergeant, you know, I, my family gives me so much purpose, right? Uh, my two kids, I have a five-year-old daughter, three-year-old son. Um, we're having a blast together. You know, I'm living a life I, I dream, I've only dreamt of. Didn't think it was possible. And I, and I don't want to lose that, obviously, right? Or my, my dad and my mom both went through multiple traumatic divorces. And I saw, you know, I felt that and I saw what it did to them. Uh, and my dad was an airman too. So, you know, I, I feel like I'm entering that stage in my life where now more than ever, I need to prioritize my life and, and where I put my time and energy. And I struggle with that. You know, I'm just being transparent. I do struggle with that and I do goof that up sometimes. Um, and so as a master sergeant, you know, I, I can't imagine how a three-star, all the moves, you know, you got twice as many kids as me, you got all these, you're moving around, you're traveling, you're deploying. Your time is, is divided so much um, that I was hoping, you know, from someone like me who, who wants to keep my family intact but also have a, a good career and take care of myself, if you had any insight at your level as to how you think that could be managed more efficiently. Yeah, I, I, I'll give you two thoughts on that. I'll give you two, two thoughts. The first is a lot of people talk about work-life balance, right? And, you know, the, the idea of balance is, you know, there are two things that are in some kind of tension, right? Like it's either this or this, and I have to find a balance between this or, or that, right? Um, and I... You know, it was my wife that taught me that it's not so much about work-life balance. It's about work-life integration. You know, it's about blending these components of our life together uh, in a harmonious way. It's not about having to make a choice between one or the other. It's about, you know, doing it all together. And that has been really useful uh, to me. The second thing that I would offer you, uh, and particularly as a senior NCO, is, you know, I struggled for for a long time with the idea that I, you know, that I was going to come in uh, a little later in the morning or go home a little earlier in the evening because I felt like, you know, I was cheating in some way, that I was, you know, I was taking a shortcut. I wasn't working as hard as I needed to. And there was this guilt associated with, you know, frankly, self-care, family care, and that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Like, you know, hey, in a, it's a service before self organization that we're in. And if I'm, you know, not spending all my waking hours uh, at the unit doing unit things, then I must not be putting service before self. And so I, you know, I struggle with, with how to square that. And the big aha for me was how often have we heard people, whether it's at NCO Academy or, you know, command and staff college or whatever, how often do we hear people tell you, hey, you really need to, you know, take care of yourself and work-life balance and all that. And, you know, what they're really telling you is, I didn't, but you should. Mm. 
right? Wow. I didn't, but you should. One description of integrity might be making sure your audio and your video match. Right. Right? And so if I'm telling you to have balance, as a senior NCO, if you're telling airmen that you supervise, they need to have some balance or they need to integrate their life or they need to take care of themselves or whatever. If you're telling them that, part of integrity is you better show them that. Right, absolutely. Right? I mean, you don't be the guy that says to do this but then shows up at 6.30 every morning and stays till, you know, 8 o'clock at night and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I had this, like, aha. Once I kind of framed it as a core value issue that, hey, i got to demonstrate this as a leader. I've got to demonstrate self-care and taking time for fitness and taking time to, you know, eat dinner with my family and get my kids off to school in the morning, you know, on the bus and and that kind of stuff. I I need to demonstrate that. It's integrity. Uh, Once I framed it as a core value thing, it really, it was like I gave myself permission to do the thing that I wanted everybody to do. Wow. Right? And so, you know, as leaders, you and I have to model the behavior that we would like to see in our subordinates. And so it's not just a matter of you taking care of yourself. It's a matter of you being a good leader and setting an example for the people you follow. And I'm sure that says something crappy about me that I had to, I had to think of it as my duty to the Air Force as opposed to my duty to myself, you know, I'm sure that there's something not good in that, but uh, but I really do view those as as duties. I, I have a duty to uh, set the example because you know, as we get into more senior positions, you know, if you're going to be in at six in the morning, guess what? There's somebody that feels like they got to be in at five forty-five. It's a it's a unspoken message that you've put out. And right. That, that's right. And there are people that are going to come in before you and people that are going to stay after you. You know, as a general, if I'm going to come in at, you know, 7 in the morning, you better believe there's going to be some major that feels like they got to be there at 630. And that major's got little kids at home. I don't have any kids at home anymore. But that major does. And now I'm, my behavior is driving them to having to come in at a unreasonable hour in the morning, right? Absolutely. And so uh, I think I think... A, a key part of this as leaders is to is to demonstrate the behavior that that we're asking people to show absolutely and uh, that that reminds me of senior master sergeant retired misty marino who was that person in first in last to leave you know just putting putting her heart and soul into that and one day she had a talk with her airmen about like what they want to do with their future and they all wanted to, to get out after their four year four to six year contract and she's like why why, why do all y'all want to do that and they said you know all due respect man we don't want to be like you and that's right that was the moment where she was like oh my goodness like this i've been putting this message out to everyone and 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 she's having the opposite effect that she was going for that's right so i never forgot you know you know I, i mean i can look back at plenty of times that uh that i did not set the example that i that i wanted to set but you know, I can't change that. I can change today. And so I'll, I will try and set a good example today, uh, despite the fact that, you know, maybe I didn't do this for my whole career. But, you know, but I can start today. 
that's learning. Today's a new day. That's right. We hear 2030 airmen a lot. We need to, be, to have the 2030 airmen ready. So I was hoping you could kind of give your final thoughts and include the vision of the 2030 airmen and why that's important. Well, uh, so I don't know what the 2030 airmen is going to look like. Uh, but what I know is that whoever that 2030 airman is, I mean, it's some kid in middle school right now, whoever that is, the Air Force that they're going to join is being built today, right? Absolutely. The, the Air Force that, that some airman is going to join is being built today because institutional change takes years. And so it's, you know, I will not be in the Air Force in 2030, but the Air Force of 2030 will still contain my fingerprints. You know, mm. things that I worked on in 2023, you know, decisions that I made, um, you know, organizations that I, that I set down a certain path, those things will define the experience of that middle school kid that is going to join the Air Force in 2030. And so, you know, I think every, every action that we take, uh, we have to be thinking about that middle school kid. And what experience do I want them to have? Well, I want them to join an organization that is relevant. I want them to join an organization that is contributing to the national defense, uh, that's indispensable to our nation, that's respected uh, by the citizens that we serve and protect. I think, you know, that's the kind of stuff that defines the Air Force that I want those middle school kids to walk into. And, you know, they'll show up, at, you know, in 2030 and, you know, they won't walk into the Air Force and go, wow, this is a great Air Force. Thank God for General's life. You know, I mean, they, I'll be an, an anonymous has-been by then, but that's okay because I'm going to get a lot of satisfaction out of watching the Airmen of 2030 uh, be enormously successful because of some of the things that we're doing today. Wow, that's beautifully said. Thank you so much, sir. So we had an amazing episode. And from you, from a, a three-star general, to sit down with me and, and have this talk, I just, I can't thank you enough. I think you're an incredible person, an incredible leader. Just your, everything about you uh, put me at ease. And, and I'm just so motivated and excited to get this episode out to everybody because it's such a special insight that you've given us today. So I wanted to thank you, sir, from the bottom of my heart for spending time with me today. Well, I'm glad to have had the opportunity to do it. A lot of fun. I, you know, probably won't come as a surprise to you. I don't do a, a lot of podcasts. I mean, this is a, a different format and a venue for me. You make it easy. You're a real professional, Josh. And, uh, you know, you've got a great reputation. And so when I had the opportunity to, uh, to join you for a conversation today, uh, there was no way I was going to say no. So thanks for, thanks for giving me um, the opportunity to sit down and talk to you. And this was the hero's journey of Lieutenant General Jim Slife. And we're out. Wow, what an incredible episode. Lieutenant General Jim Slife dropping so much knowledge on us. I just rewatched the whole episode myself, and I am yet again blown away by his insight. I want to give a special shout-out to Major Kate Hewlett for setting this conversation up. And, of course, I want to give a special shout-out to Lieutenant General Jim Slife on spending time with the Herofront family. I also want to thank everyone for listening until the very end and for all the support that you have shown me and the Hero Front podcast. And with that, my daughter is going to close us out. Thanks 
for watching my dad's video. This was the Hero Funk Podcast. I hope you have a magical day. Bye-bye now. Um, so here's the topics that I've outlined. I have a, a little bit of background on you if, if you want to highlight some of how you came to be, which that's probably a very long story, so I'll let you decide how you want to wordsmith that. Um, <laughs> I think you just told me I was old. I'm not telling you you're old. <laughs> I just know you, you've done a lot of things. You've done all the things. 